You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 12th of December 2022 on Monocle 24. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up, southern Ukraine sees ferocious fighting as Russia launches drone strikes at Odessa and Kiev fights back in Melitopol. We'll have the latest from Ukraine. Also coming up, questions are raised over Hungary's role in the Ukraine war, with one commentator going so far as to ask, is Hungary becoming Russia's spy hub in Europe? We'll hear more about the joint scheme among Japan, the UK and Italy to develop the next generation of fighter jets and we'll explore the continuing political undercurrents that dog this year's World Cup. This burden should never have fallen on the athletes. It has because FIFA itself has abrogated its own responsibility. Plus, if you've got a precious few minutes to relax this season, our editor Josh Fennett will brief us on the latest edition of our winter newspaper, The Alpino. There is something for all of the people who care about defence. There's a broader story about the US and Russia. And there's a human story about these guys out in the high north who are actually on one of the frontiers that we very, very rarely talk about and think about in the news. That's all coming up on The Globalist, live from London. First, a quick look at what else is happening in today's news. A man has opened fire at a cafe in Rome, killing three women, including a friend of the Italian Prime Minister Giorgio Maloney. China says it'll abolish its mobile COVID tracking service as it continues to dismantle its zero COVID machine. And a second person has been executed in Iran following the wave of anti-government protests. Stay tuned to Monocle 24 throughout the day for more on these stories. But first, the fighting in the south of Ukraine intensified this weekend as Russian drone strikes caused damage and power cuts in the city of Odessa and Ukrainian forces mounted a comeback in Melitopol. Well, to get the the latest on what has happened in Ukraine in the last couple of days. Let's hear from Lada Roslitsky, who's the founder of Black Trident, a defence and security consulting group in Ukraine. She joins us on the line from Kiev. And I'm joined now by Stephen Diel as well, writer, broadcaster and Russia analyst. A very good morning to you both. Good morning. Lada, if we can start with you, what happened this weekend? Uh, well, this weekend has been another continuish, continuation of uh, Russian attacks against Ukraine, particularly uh, its critical infrastructure, as a result of which, uh, very sadly, 1.5 million uh, people in Odessa are additionally left without power. And uh, those attacks against Ukraine's critical infrastructure have now uh, raised the percentage of uh, infrastructure that has been destroyed to about 50% of, uh, of Ukraine in total. Lada, just bringing that a little bit further on, the, the, the president, Volodymyr Zelensky, has over the last few days said this does not get repaired overnight either. This takes days to bring back online. Yeah, absolutely. And now we're reading even that the Odessa situation will take up to three months and uh, I mean, even in Kiev, we're still really struggling with electricity and uh, and communications. And we've been told that we should wait until the end of spring. 
so the the damage is significant and it's having a really uh, a really strong effect on people's nerves and psychological and work conditions. Tell us a little bit more about that, given the fact that just before we came on air, I, I asked you how you were and you said, today I have Wi-Fi, heating, water, I have the works. And there was a there's a real sense of joy in your voice that you were able to get everything that many people just take for granted. Oh, it's a miracle. It's really wonderful uh, that I can talk to you, for instance, and, uh, and my phone works. So it's, it's also this sense of urgency that uh, do it as much as you can as long as this service is, is available. Uh, so it's, it is difficult and it's very difficult to be able to work continuously because work re- requires concentration. And if you don't have stability, that concentration uh, is, is jeopardized. Um, Stephen, just turning to you now, so this is what's happened in in Odessa with the Russian drone strikes. Um, let's look at what's happening in Melitopol, where the Russian forces are facing an astonishing comeback from the Ukrainian forces. Yes, there was a major attack by the Ukrainian army on uh, Russia's largest base there. Um, we don't have all the details. Of course, these things are always very difficult to verify in terms of numbers of casualties and so on, but it does appear to have caused a lot of Russian casualties, probably a lot of dead Russian soldiers. Um, and it's that sort of news after, combined with what you've just been talking about, with the, um, the, the drone strikes taking out power, that to my mind, and I'd be very interested if Lada could confirm this, but it, it, it just gives Ukrainians that extra determination because it's not as if the Russians are winning hands down. It's because the Russians are doing so badly on the battlefield that they've taken to this dreadful policy of taking out uh, power and, and attacking civilians. Um, but all the while that the Ukrainian army can make gains, as they appear to be doing in Melitopol, uh, then surely that is that is just a great boost for for Ukrainians everywhere to say, look, um, you know, the war in terms of the the fighting amongst troops is certainly appears to be continually going Ukraine's way. Lada, would you agree with that that the fighting is going Ukraine's way and and footage that's emerged of this uh, this attack on this barrack seems to show absolute devastation. I mean, it, it, are the Ukrainians feeling lifted by this? Ukraine always feels lifted when we uh, win in battle, but uh, we also have to really keep in mind that the number of uh, reports coming out of how we are losing and where we're losing is uh, is properly limited. So uh, it's definitely too um, soon to celebrate or, or really say that the Russians are doing very poorly, as, uh, as we know their intention is uh, to commit genocide against us and they're taking on a very hybrid approach which also includes very sadly ecocide i mean over, they've killed over 50,000 dolphins just if you could imagine in the black sea and over 200,000 square miles square kilometers sorry um have been mined and uh, all, again about a quarter of a million uh, of Ukraine's territory has been scorched. The, the, the buildings have, don't exist anymore, let alone the trees and, and the birds and the little animals that used to live around there. So it's, it's a terrible situation. And then, of course, we celebrate when, when we have a nice event like we, we see uh, happening in Melitopol and also in Crimea over the weekend. We saw also, Steve, Stephen, um, reports that the Wagner headquarters have been attacked. This is not the same, is it? 
No, it's not. No, I mean, Wagner, which is this, um, shall we say, extraordinary organization, it is acknowledged in Russian as well to be a private military company, uh, which under the Russian constitution, which of course now counts for very little, uh, but private military companies are illegal. Um, but of course, this was set up by Yevgeny Prigozhin, who's very close to Putin. Um, and they have a reputation for being particularly brutal. Um, they, uh, in, 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 in almost a direct sense, take no prisoners. Um, uh, and so, again, that's um, I take Lada's point that we don't know everything that's happening on the battlefield, but that's just another piece of, of good news as far as the Ukrainian armed forces are concerned. If they've, um, if Wagner have taken a serious hit, uh, then th all these things, let's look at the other side. You know, back in Moscow, um, maybe the, the average Ivan on the street doesn't know exactly what's going on, but the people in the Kremlin know what's going on. Uh, and when they see organizations such as Wagner being hit, um, which, as I say, is it's a private military company, but it's a particularly nasty one. These are, these are, these are brutes. Um, if, if they're being taken out in any significant numbers, that has to cause worries in the Kremlin, and that can only be a good thing. And briefly, just to ask you, uh, Stephen, while the daily effect on Russians is, is beginning to be felt, the Kremlin is trying to work out who it can bring in as allies. And the accusations over the weekend from the United States was that the Russians and the Iranians are now full military partners. Yes, that's, uh, that is a very worrying development, not only for the war in Ukraine, but for the wider global security picture. Um, we know that um, Iran has been supplying uh, Russia with drones, um, and the Ukrainians know it most of all because they've been shooting many of them down. And many of them also have been hitting targets. Um, that is something which could well take this conflict beyond the bounds of, of Ukraine. Um, because the, uh, the United States allies in the Middle East will be looking at this with great concern, because if the Russians are then providing military help also to Iran, um, and of course with the demonstrations and the trouble that's been going on in Iran, one way for a country to deflect that is then to attack another country. Um, Israel in particular will be concerned about Iran, for example. Um, so that, that, that really is a worrying development. Um, how strong the two sides would be is another issue. I mean, the Iranian drones are not the greatest. They, they've caused a lot of damage in Ukraine, but they're not the greatest. Russia's military is not as strong as it was a year ago, uh, since before the war. Um, nevertheless, yeah, that, um, as I say, in, in a strategic, uh, in the strategic picture, that looks a, a, a very worrying development. And the United States in particular will be keeping very close tabs on that. Finally, um Lada, back in Kiev, the discussions that are taking place um, on Kiev's 10-point peace plan. Tell us where we are with that. It's actually really uh, uh, moving forward. And in the last few days, the American ambassador to Ukraine, uh, Brink, has announced that the peace plan actually has support from the group of seven which is going to be having a online summit i believe it is today and it is very significant if we consider the fact that the group of seven is um uh, basically worth over half of the global net wealth so their coordination in accordance with ukraine's peace plan is significant and we should be uh, keeping a very close eye on on how things move forward so uh, the ukrainians have also been asking and calling for a coordinated 
global uh, peace conference to be organized based upon the uh, vision of, of, of a peaceful future. So it's, it's significant and, and exciting. Lada Rodzelitsky in Kiev and Stephen Dale here in the United Kingdom. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining us on Monocle 24. You with The Globalist. <laughs> 8.12 in Paris, 7.12 here in London. Now, fresh attempts will be made by the European Union today to persuade Hungary to allow another huge tranche of aid to be sent to help Ukraine. Last week, Budapest vetoed the provision of the extra 18 billion euros, and it's led to wider questions being asked about what role Hungary is playing in all this. Well, joining me from Budapest is Justin Spike, who's a Hungary correspondent for the Associated Press. A very good morning to you, Justin. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So just bef- before we see what you know, Hungary is, is and isn't doing, this 18 billion euros intended to help Ukraine, what is it intended to do? So this 18 billion uh, euro aid package is basically meant to help the Ukrainian state uh, oversee its, its essential functions, uh, all the basic uh, needs that it has in order to, to keep the power on, for example, to keep uh, basic provisions, water, uh, and other utilities moving to keep schools open, things which have been put under incredible stress by by Russian attacks on a lot of Ukrainian infrastructure and uh, by the slowdown of the economy in Ukraine due to the war. So they really need this injection of extra cash in the coming year to basically just keep the state moving. And Hungary has said no. Why? So Hungary's prime minister, Viktor Orban, has argued that it's really a principled position for him. He says that he opposes uh, the EU member states jointly taking out credit, taking out a line of credit in order to uh, help Ukraine with this 18 billion euros. He says he doesn't want uh, the 27 member states to become uh, sort of a community of indebted states. But, uh, but that line is coming under increasing scrutiny and met with increasing skepticism in the EU because it's becoming clearer and clearer for many member states that Orban is rather using uh, his veto power of this of this aid package as leverage to try to sort of wring concessions out of the EU because they've held up uh, to Hungary a seven seven point five billion uh, euros in budgetary funds and then another five point eight billion euros uh, for a for an economic recovery package uh, which came out of the 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 COVID nineteen pandemic. So he's basically using his veto power in order to put pressure on the EU to go ahead and, and hand over these funds, which they have withheld for well over a year now due to rule of law concerns, concerns that the judiciary is uh, is not sufficiently free in Hungary and that there's been democratic backsliding. So there's quite a lot to, to, to deal with here. So let's look at the two issues that have that, that have come to a head. The first is you, you were just talking about then the 7.5 billion euros um, suspended from Hungary's regular EU payouts. Um, just tell us a little bit about what effect that is having on Hungary. Well, it's certainly uh, spooked investors. Um, the market in Hungary uh, is showing a significant slowdown. We've got uh, over 22% inflation on the year this month. Uh, Hungary's currency, the forint, uh, has dipped more than 11% against the euro since the beginning of the year. So Hungary really needs uh, this money in order to keep uh, its basic functions going, uh, perhaps sort of ironically, and also to, to sort of calm markets because, uh, because confidence has really dropped and it's really showing uh, on the economy. Hungary has the, the highest inflation out of all the 27 uh, member states of the EU. So Orban really needs this cash and, and he knows it. 
and and Brussels knows that re- Hungary really needs this cash as well. So we're kind of in a in a head to head situation where it's kind of unclear who is putting pressure on whom in this situation. The head to head though is is down to whether um, the democratic backslide that you've just mentioned in the country is actually reversed in any in any way, and Hungary has to demonstrate to the European Union that it is fixing this, these problems that it's it's accused of. Um, there is clearly a sign that these problems are not being fixed because the money is not forthcoming. Yes, Hungary has undertaken uh, to to implement a raft of reforms uh, that it has committed to in order to gain access to these funds. Um, and so, you know, that was put forward to the European Commission uh, and Hungary's government was saying, look, we've, we've, we've passed all these new laws, we've put forward all these new reforms, we've set up uh, what they call an in- integrity uh, office, which is meant to protect EU funds from potential corruption and abuse. But the European Commission looked at this uh, last week and they said, well, uh, it's good that this has all been done, but it's not enough. We're still not confident that uh, that the seven and a half billion euros is going to be used properly. So they went and, and they kept with the recommendation that it be withheld. So Hungary still has uh, has some work to do to put forward more uh, more reforms in order to convince the European Commission that uh, that sending the money uh, is is the best bet. And it is still smarting as well. Therefore, it is it is causing this block when it comes to releasing money to Ukraine. But am I right in thinking that member states reached an agreement this weekend to try and unblock that 18 billion package of financial aid to, to, by by trying effectively to circumvent the the Hungarian veto? That's correct, and I think that really shows that that Orbán's veto power and his tools for for uh, sort of exacting leverage on the EU are sort of running out. Um, yes, the the EU basically came up with a solution to be able to circumvent Orbán's veto by taking the remaining 26 member states and making it possible for them to take out this line of credit to provide uh, aid to Ukraine, whether or not. Uh, Orban consents to it, so that really takes a, a, a serious card out of Orban's hands when it comes to when it comes to trying to pressure the EU to get these funds. It takes a serious card, and and it could have long term effects because if the EU can circumvent a Hungarian veto once, it can do it several times, and it could possibly really change the game when it comes to the way that the European Union has to deal with Viktor Orban, or with any other member state that the EU considers to be. Uh, a, a serial abuser of EU funds or a serial violator of democratic standards. So if they're able to go around Orbán's veto in this case, they could also go around his veto on uh, on the matter of passing a global minimum corporate tax, which he's also been holding up. And so there are a lot in the EU who have been arguing that, uh, that you know, consensus-based deci- decisions within the EU Council need to be done away with because it means that a single member state is able to hold up some of these major priorities uh, that the bloc has. And if they're able to do that and they start doing that, then then you're correct. That really changes the game. So does this this does this change the game for Viktor Orban personally as well? Because, you know, as as many people have suggested in the last few years, the ability of, 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 of Hungary to sort of put its foot on the European Union's windpipe and, and stop it from um, doing what it wants to do has been considerable, hasn't it? It has. This is not the first time that uh, that Hungary has used its its veto power in order to in order to prevent uh, the EU from carrying out some of its priorities. Um, and I think that that by doing this, the EU is basically signaling that it's it's really had enough 
um, you know, this this debate over over the rule of law in Hungary, over uh, suspected corruption, over media freedom, over judicial independence, treatment of minorities, LGBTQ rights, etc. These debates have been going on for years, but uh, but very little has has been done or or has been succeeded in doing uh, within the EU to to really put pressure on Orban to change tack. So the fact that his government has has committed to carrying out a lot of these reforms uh, shows that that the EU has really reached a red line and and they are putting as much pressure on him uh, as possible now, which is a real kind of change in tack. So Justin, uh, how does this resolve itself? Um, will this only really well will, will Hungary only really be let's say you know redeemed and brought back within the fold once Orban is gone? Gone. Is that the only way out here? I think that really depends on what he decides to do and how much he decides he needs the seven and a half billion in uh, in uh, budget funds and this five point eight billion economic recovery package. If if Orban and his government really believe that the Hungarian economy cannot do without these funds and cannot figure out a way to bridge that budgetary gap without them, then there's really very little choice, uh, especially if some of these bargaining chips, which he's been using, uh, are taken out of his hands. Justin Spike, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. Still to come on today's programme, we'll have a special interview with the former captain of Australia's national football team, Craig Foster. This burden should never have fallen on the athletes. It has because FIFA itself has abrogated its own responsibility. Stay with us on The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. you're back with The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson, where the time here in London is 7.22. Now, Japan, Italy and the United Kingdom are to join forces to develop a next-generation fighter jet. It's called the Global Combat Air Programme, GCAP, and the partners say they plan to have the fighter ready by 2035. What's interesting is it's the biggest post-war defence collaboration by Japan with any other nation other than the US. And to tell us more, I'm joined from Tokyo by Tomohiko Tanguchi, a foreign policy specialist who formerly served as special advisor to the late Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. A very good morning, good day to you, Tomohiko. Thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. Thank you very much for having me. So just explain to us what this plan is. This plan is uh, to build the sixth generation aircraft, air fighter. But it is not uh, just about creating and building air fighter jet aircraft. It is going to create a whole system that would include unmanned vehicles. And because this is very much network centric, uh, the UK, Japan and Italy must also work with the United States to maximize its network uh, effect. And by so doing, these countries are aiming at achieving a capability 
uh, big enough to counterbalance the existence of um, uh, authoritarian regimes, uh, air and uh, space capacities. Could just explain to us a little bit about what, what this counterbalance is. Are we thinking and considering principally that this is China? Uh, certainly, yes. When it comes to artificial intelligence, quantum computing, the uh, strides that China has made of late are awesome. And it is very much imperative for the UK, Italy, Japan, and the United States to join forces. Uh, the beauty of a democratic nations such as these being able to join forces is to uh, seek the maximum benefit of uh, networked knowledge. And that uh, networked knowledge is something that um, uh, one uh, hopes uh, to work as a counterbalance against China and Russia as well. Tell us a little bit more to Mexico about why Italy and the United Kingdom have been uh, chosen in particular, because if, if this plan goes ahead, it will be the biggest Japanese-European defence cooperation programme ever undertaken. Certainly, uh, certainly, this is very much going to be a very no, 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 novel, novel, uh, novel uh, project. Uh, Japan has done nothing of this sort. Uh, but in the recent past, Japan has purchased as much as as many as 147 uh, aircraft, AF-35 aircraft, which is the most advanced aircraft you can see. Uh, and so Japan uh, remains very much a faithful uh, uh, customer, if you like, of the United States. And the United States does not have um, uh, anything in, in its pipeline that uh, Japan could use in the uh, immediate future, uh, looking beyond the 2020-2025, that timeline. Whereas on the, on the, on the other hand, in the UK, um, the uh, BAE systems and others have been developing quite some time. The uh, successor of a Eurofighter uh, Typhoon and Tempest, uh, obviously, he must be much, much uh, more horrible than the Typhoon. And uh, uh, that has actually combined Japan and the UK as natural partners. Indeed, I mean, it's, it's interesting to see how Britain and Japan have been building a defence relationship for a while. They've, the two sides have agreed to develop a fighter jet engine demonstrator and the, and, and the UK MOD is, is supporting Japan in the, the new joint new to air, in joint new air to missile programme. Um, what are you, what is Japan hoping to achieve by forging relations with someone like the UK? Cooperation with technologies itself is very much important. Uh, what the UK has uh, uh, includes what the, what, the, what the UK has includes many things that Japan does not have, such as nuclear uh, engine uh, uh, capacities that uh, Rolls Royce has. But uh, beyond technology, uh, there is a philo philosophical and political umbrella that covers these uh, cooperations. Uh, from from the UK side. The uh, United Kingdom government is now seeking something called Global Britain. I think that's uh, in large part because of the um, uh, outcome of um, UK uh, having made Brexit. And, uh, and from the Japanese side, uh, the uh, Japanese uh, defense uh, uh, institutions are looking more at the wider uh, scale uh, beyond the Pacific. We're now talking about the Indo-Pacific. So in the Indian Ocean, Japan is naturally meeting the uh, United Kingdom and politically uh, the UK and Japan 
have chosen to call each other uh, almost an alliance partner. And that's uh, something that uh, you couldn't have imagined coming uh, uh, in, in, in the uh, 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 coming com coming in the future, if it had be, if it had been uh, in the nineteen nineties or early two thousands, and that uh, has been propelled, uh, let's face it, by the emergence of a mega power such as such as China, and the uh, uh, outright outright outreach of the international regimes and norms we are witnessing daily by Russia. It's also a clever move by Japan, the United Kingdom and Italy insofar as they can export to the European market and you can export to to, to, to Asian, Asian markets as well. This is this suddenly becomes something where you, you all benefit economically, isn't it? Theoretically, yes, I wouldn't uh, disagree with that. But uh, uh, let's remember, Japan has exported nothing absolutely nothing in its weapon system abroad. Um, whereas uh, Japan's immediate neighbor, South Korea, is now the uh, 10th or 11th uh, biggest uh, defense exporter uh, in the world. But Japan has done not nothing. So uh, Japan's uh, got a learning curve that's very much steep. I, I would hope that Japan uh, would uh, be uh, capable of uh, selling those technologies and uh, finished products abroad. But I think it's too early uh, to discuss anything like that. Tamahiko Taniguchi, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. The time is just nudging 7.30 here in London. A quick look at what else we're keeping an eye on today. A man has opened fire at a cafe in Rome, killing three women, including a friend of the Italian Prime Minister, Giorgio Maloney. The mayor of Rome, Roberto Gualtieri, is expected to attend an emergency meeting. A 57-year-old man is reportedly in custody. China says it'll abolish its mobile COVID tracking service as it continues to dismantle its zero-COVID machine. Health officials suggest that COVID is spreading rapidly, however, especially in Beijing, where long queues have formed at hospitals. And a second person has been executed in Iran following the wave of anti-government protests. Majid Reza Ranvarad was convicted of stabbing and killing two members of the security forces. He was hanged in the city of Mashhad. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. Now, this year's FIFA World Cup in Qatar has a strong claim to be the most controversial football competition in history. With relentless criticism over the host nation's human rights record, Qatar's soft power push might, well, have backfired. But what's it like to be a player trying to represent your country in all of this? Well, a little earlier, Andrew Muller sat down with Craig Foster, who's an Australian sports commentator and activist who formerly played football professionally for Australia's national team, the Socceroos. Andrew began by asking, Craig, if wearing the Australian shirt at international tournaments felt different? Oh, without doubt. Players rightly feel a tremendous amount of pride and pressure, of course, in representing their own countries. It's very different when people come together from all the disparate clubs around the world or very largely across Europe with all of the top national teams in the world and then represent their own people back home, represent their families, represent their nation represent the history of their nations, so many of them, whether they're World Cup winners or nations who have storied history, they'll feel a deep sense of pride in carrying that legacy. So it's very, very different when people 
feel as though they're representing their own cultures, their own national identities, and, you know, continuing those stories. Because one of the things we're talking about in this episode is what happens when players, especially representing the world's democracies, find themselves projecting those countries in not necessarily agreeable or hospitable environments. Of course, you played for Australia at the FIFA Confederations Cup in 1997, which was held in Saudi Arabia. If you go back 25 years to that, was there ever any talk among the players or among Australian football as to whether Australia should be going at all? and how they should handle it when they got there? Not really at all, no. So it shows you how much the sporting world has changed. And in particular, in recent years, once FIFA implemented a human rights policy, and I think that's what has been the central focus of Qatar 2022, is that now players are or at least should and probably have to be educated on you know the international rights-based framework. And so we see, for instance, the Australian national team spending around 18 months to two years of being educated through their players' union in particular on, you know, what the human rights issues are in Qatar, about, you know, the concepts that 25 years ago athletes were barely alive to. Mm. So if you're talking about, you know, the great moments of athlete advocacy um, around perhaps apartheid in South Africa or the Black Power salute, the human rights salute, for example, you usually found that those athletes were somehow party to or embedded in civil society organisations and therefore they were taking advice on how they should act or regarding boycotts of the like from organisations of people largely outside of sport. Whereas today, the entire human rights movement has for the first time become embedded inside the global sport of football itself Mm. and therefore the act of being a player today is very different to what it used to be. What have you made so far of the way that players have either engaged with or protested against conditions in Qatar? There was, of course, that test case very early on when captains who said they were going to wear the rainbow armband had it decided for them by their football associations that they weren't. So the overall response has been horrifically poor. And that's not surprising because the game of football, like the Olympics and other global sporting organisations, are deeply political and make decisions based on both politics and particularly economics rather than on the concepts of basic human rights or support for vulnerable and affected groups, either in their sport or, in this case, with mega sporting events. So, you know, there's been immense pressure applied through federations who themselves are deeply politicised. They're always very close Mm. to their own governments, for example. So those countries we've seen who have very uh, strong ties with Qatar are countries where the football federations will be trying to silence the voices of the athletes. In other countries, we see pressures coming because of the amount of finance and ownership of clubs in Qatar, of, you know, the political and soft power relationships that Qatar and other areas in the Gulf, countries in the Gulf have been able to develop through the game. So federations in particular have been extremely weak, but FIFA itself has been shockingly bad. The reason being is because they actually have a human rights policy. So, Mm. you know, this burden should never have fallen on the athletes. It has because FIFA itself has abrogated its own responsibility. And that was the former Socceroo footballer Craig Foster speaking to Andrew Muller. This is a globalist.
Let's have a look at today's newspapers. Joining me in the studio is Andrew Walker, the journalist and former economics correspondent for the BBC World Service. Hello, Andrew. Hello, Emma. Good to have you here this Monday. Good to be here. So... We've got to start with some quite complicated science when it comes right, yes. to, the, to, the, to the newspapers. Yeah. Um, so you've decided to talk to us about a story in the Financial Times which talks about a breakthrough in nuclear fusion. Now, we have to explain yep. what nuclear fusion is, don't we? So you have a go. <laughs> you come, sure, you're much more qualified than I well, am, so explain it. it. It's, it's actually the, the, the process by which the sun generates energy and it's, um, it's fusing together hydrogen, nuclei, to produce producing um, producing helium and the the physics of it is such that that generates a potentially very large energy output. Um, it's also the process that's used in hydrogen bombs. Um, the, the the challenge of making use of this this um, this process has always been doing it in a kind of controlled, safe way and generating um, sufficient sufficient energy to, as it were, cover the cost of the energy that you have to put in to get the thing, the process going in the first place. Now, what the FT have got, and a number of other p- papers have picked this up as well, actually, um, is that there's a, a federal laboratory in California um, has managed to... Um, make this breakthrough and we apparently are going to get some announcement about it in the next couple of days formally but the ft um, have got some sort of inside story on this they have made a breakthrough of being able to get more energy coming out of the process than they are putting in to get the fusion to happen hitherto that has not been possible and i have to say my little back of the envelope calculations suggest that the the net energy output of this is pretty small i mean frankly really tiny but you know nonetheless there's no question that if this process could be harnessed it would have potentially enormous benefits no carbon uh, emissions um minimal uh, radioactive problems and the potential at least to generate very large amounts of power most that the, the ft is talking about decades before we get you know a, a viable power station out of it um but uh, but it's still a very striking development. It has been the thing that everybody's been pinning their hopes on for a very, very long time because, A, as you say, it creates an enormous amount mm-hmm. of energy when you fling two, two yeah, atoms yeah. together. But the great benefit of this is it's very different from nuclear fission, which is when you split indeed, atoms. Yeah. Yeah. And if you split atoms, stuff is going to come out. Indeed. But if you fuse which, them... Which takes thousands of years to become safe. Um, there is some radioactive byproducts from... Uh, from this process of fusion, but it has a very short half-life and it seems to be generally... The, the view is that this is not likely to be a major problem, certainly nothing like the scale of problem that's involved in um, in dealing with the, the waste from plutonium or uranium fission processes. But I suspect you and I might not be around when, all, when we're, when we're sort of like making <laughs> well, our there, cups there, of tea from nuclear uh, fusion. It, 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 I mean, I've seen some reports using the, the word decade in the singular, oh, okay. so maybe um, the FT does take some care to use the plural, so yeah, it might be quite a way, and it does suggest I think that we still have to think about renewables in in the interim if we are going to get anywhere near uh, visions of net zero. And also we are but young pups. Um, Let's let's move to the Japan Times. It's having huge problems with inflation. Well, not the Japan Times, but Japan is. Well, Japan has got um, Japan's got a, a curious inflation history. Ever since the financial crisis in 1991, 
inflation has averaged something like 0.2, 0.3%, and there have been years um, when inflation has been below zero. That's actually a problem. I mean, it, it, I mean, most economists would tell you that a little bit of inflation is a good thing for, for various reasons, and the Bank of Japan does indeed have a target of 2%. What's happened in the... In, in the fallout from um, from COVID and from the, um, the the major energy and food shock that we've had from the um, the war in Ukraine, is that Japanese inflation has now finally picked up and it's gone above target, three point six percent, and people are starting to wonder if after three decades of extraordinary monetary policy, the Bank of Japan might have to finally change. Now, what it's doing, one of the things that it's doing is um, it actually has a target for keeping ten, the, the return on 10-year government debt at zero, um, which is you know, really a pretty extraordinary thing. Um, but at long last, people are beginning to wonder if perhaps it's going to have to start um, start changing. Very striking difference to the situation in in other developed economies, the UK, the US, the Eurozone, where where central banks have been, in some cases, quite aggressively raising interest rates. Japan hasn't got there yet because of this long history of of, um, of an excessively low inflation problem. Um, but something does seem to be some does seem to be stirring there at last. Let's move on to Deutsche Welle. Um, and in the in the wake of that quite extraordinary yeah. story that broke out of Germany last week, when the existence of parallel kingdoms mm, with mm. with with a marking a deeper, um, more menacing narrative of attempts to overthrow the German government, yeah. we then have the German government responding accordingly with stricter stricter gun control. They're pr- certainly considering that um, Deutsche Welle picking up. Um, uh, some quotes that um, the interior minister has given to Biltam Sontag um, suggesting yes they're going to tighten gun laws. They're already pretty tight in Germany it has to be said um, but they have been, I mean a number of occasions we've heard um, people associated with the, um, with the government trying to emphasise look these people are not just harmless cranks. Um, many, the, the significant numbers of them do have weapons. Um, there were plans potentially to kill people. Um, they are, the German government says, a serious terrorist threat. I mean, one of the, and you mentioned how extraordinary this whole episode w- was, one aspect of it that particularly struck me was the, um, at least some variants of this plot appeared to involve returning to the 1871 German borders which include parts, significant parts of what is now Poland and a bit of France as well. Um, so not really surprising that the German government is thinking very, scratching its head very hard about what it can do to to deal with a far-right problem that Germany clearly does have. Indeed, and it's and it's a it's a problem that has gone as far as 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 you say to try to create kingdoms. I mean, normally when you have a far-right movement, they operate from within the system. But this mm-hmm. was what astonished me was the fact that they had just gone full independence and had recruited several thousand people indeed and the one of the ideas was that the um that the federal german republic the creation after the second world war was simply not a legitimate state and they their view was that the the 1871 
Reich was still the legitimate German state. Finally, um, I don't know what anybody's having for their breakfast. It's breakfast time here in the UK at least. Um, But if you are uh, just tucking into your lunch or maybe an early afternoon snack... um, a durian fruit, yeah. I suspect, might not be in your hand. Well, it's, but it, but it, it will be if you're um, well. If you're reading the Straits Times, it, it might be all we're eating very soon. Um, so, at a time when we have a major, as I already mentioned, in the context of inflation, um, a serious food price shock. Yes, in in Singapore, a glut of durians um, coming across the causeway from Malaysia has resulted in record low prices. And um, you know, d- d- just to remember, the durian is a a fruit that very sharply divides opinions. <laughs> I've never tried it, I have to say, despite having been a number of times to countries where it is considered by some people to be a delicacy, but others um, describe the smell of it as like rotten onions, sewage, turpentine. Um, I actually consulted some friends last night who, who'd, who'd lived for many years in, in that part of the world. Um, and... <sighs> There is a view. There is a view that it's that it that it that it's that it's well worth eating, um, but one of the consequences of um, a variety of things have all come together to drive down the price to um, to buy as much as forty percent from what it was just a few months ago. Goodness me! So we're all going to be stirring it into our breakfast yogurt and granola. Maybe. Bon appétit. Thank you, Andrew Thank Walker. You You're listening to the Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. talk business now. Rachel Puppetzoni joins me down the line from Perth. A very good afternoon to you, Rachel. It's nearly evening, isn't it? Hi, Emma. It is, but we've still got a few hours left of sunlight, so Excellent. Um, I'll be heading out shortly. I'm in, I'm in the, the darkness of the United Kingdom. You can tell me what sunlight's like another day. Um, <laughs> right, tell us about what's happening in the economy. There's huge decisions by the, by the central bank where you are on there. Well, it's a big week um, for central banks globally. Um, our central bank met last week, but the one that all eyes will be on this week uh, is the US Fed. It's meeting uh, for two days in the middle of the week, uh, and it's likely that it's going to start slowing the rate of um, hikes that it's been doing. Now, of course, it started with uh, the three quarters of a percentage point rate hikes back in June. It's done four of them now in a row, so that's a, a quick 3% added uh, there in the US. But the expectation is that this week we'll see 50 basis point rate hike from uh, Jerome Powell and his colleagues. If that happens, that would uh, lift the federal funds rate to a range of 425 to 4.5%. It's a pretty high chance that we'll see that. Most market uh, economists that have been surveyed are expecting that we'll see that kind of uh, smaller but still pretty big rate hike when you consider that traditionally before this past year, uh, a typical rate hike was 25 basis points. And the reason that we're potentially going to see a a reduction in the aggressiveness of the rate hikes out of the US is because inflation is starting to come down. I say that, though, with a grain of salt, Emma, because US uh, core inflation is currently 7.7%. And when you think of the fact that the US Fed has a target of 2%, uh, that's still a way 
way off. Uh, but uh, broadly expecting that we're going to see this pace of rate hikes really start to temper from here on. And will this cool things and stabilise things? Well, the expectation, well, the hope, I guess, is that 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 it will, and in fact, um, that is probably going to lead to a ripple effect elsewhere. We've also got uh, the European Central Bank meeting this week, as well as the Bank of England. And we saw the Bank of England uh, last month lift by uh, three quarters of a percentage point as well. But that bank is also widely tipped to lift by half a percentage point this week. So too with the European Central Bank. Uh, And we're also um, seeing some inflation numbers cool there too. It's also worth pointing out that the reason potentially why we're starting to see this is um, because I guess we've seen now several months of very strong rate hikes globally, uh, of course, led by the US in terms of the severity of those increases, uh, not necessarily in terms of uh, the timing. Um, but there's a real lag that exists with these uh, rate hikes and the the impact that they have on consumers and, and people uh, who have uh, mortgages that they're repaying that really um, will feel the brunt of those increases. We are now really only starting to see that um, feed through to the economy, and that's why we are starting to see this very uh, incremental reduction in inflation globally. Uh, So there's a real risk, though, if central banks overshoot the mark that they could uh, really uh, make things worse. So that is potentially why we're starting to see this tempering uh, happen. But we're by no means near where central banks want to be when they talk about their inflation targets. So it potentially might just be a watch and act kind of uh, mode that we're now entering as opposed to that sort of critical phase that we're perhaps leaving now. Tell us a little bit about the potential damaging effects of lag time. And you mentioned the fact, you know, we have inflation, which is still very, very high. And when you have this pullback from central banks, you have people left stuck in the middle, don't you? That's right. And, and you know, the the fact of the matter is that the global economy is very much on a downward trajectory. And that um, compounds, right? If people feel um, concerned about their spending, um, the, their disposable income, I guess, um, they're not going to spend. Uh, and that then feeds into the demand um, for businesses. So say, you know, you've got, uh, you're paying more for your mortgage. So you've got less money to spend on your groceries. You're perhaps not um, going out as often. Uh, maybe you're not buying as many clothes. All those kind of businesses will start to see um, spending reduce and they may then start to lay off workers. They'll order less product so that that, that side of the cycle will start to occur. The risk of overshooting the mark, I guess, is creating this uh, real feeling of um um, lack of income and lack of financial support and people will really, um, I guess, slam on the brakes when it comes to spending and then you could have a real big problem with um, the the um, impact on the broader economy and then things can come to a screeching halt. So this is the real balance that central banks are really trying to navigate at the moment. Still, inflation is exceptionally high, as I said, much higher than targets. So there's still a way to go, um, but perhaps central banks are really now um, just sort of uh, walking that tightrope with more caution and care than they were to really get things moving in the months up till now. And and in the meantime, consumers are having to find their treats in smaller places, aren't they? So you know, there's always that thing that in the middle of a recession, women buy a lot of lipstick because it's it's a nice little booster. Uh, chocolate falls into that category as well, doesn't it? 
Oh, it certainly does. And I'm definitely doing my part um, in terms <laughs> of my consumption and purchasing of chocolate. But interesting, um, uh, today we heard from Mars, which is the world's biggest confectionery producer. Uh, they're really trying to target some of these uh, more emerging markets. There was an interesting stat around uh, that apparently Europeans eat an average seven kilograms of chocolate a year. I hate to think how much I eat, but it's probably within that vicinity. Um, I definitely think I'd be average, if not above. Uh, but when you're looking at some other markets, um, those more emerging markets like Brazil and Nigeria, the chocolate consumption is much less. In fact, uh, in Nigeria, uh, people on average eat just 200 grams, um, which I think is like one chocolate bar. So I'm definitely not in that category. So Mars is really trying to expand into uh, those emerging markets, Mexico, Brazil, uh, the UAE, um, as I said, Kenya, Nigeria, Egypt, uh, all those kind of markets. Uh, so it's uh, hoping to grow um, that market share in those parts of the world. Uh, but it's a company that's doing pretty well. Uh, yes. This last year had $45 billion worth of annual sales. So I think they're doing all right. And as I said, I'm doing my bit too. So, so am I, Rachel. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us on Monocle 24. <laughs> Now, Monocle is heading to high altitude once again with the latest edition of our winter newspaper, Monocle Alpino. It hits the newsstands this week. From Europe's mountainous peaks to its Arctic frontiers, our correspondents have been dispatched to snowy destinations, bringing you an on-point selection of all cold weather related news. Well, Monocle's editor, Josh Fennett, is with me now. Um, a very good morning to you, Josh. Not dressed for the cold weather, but that's because we're nice and cosy inside. It's lovely in the studio here, isn't it? Doesn't it feel like a, a, a moment of summer breaking out in a very cold blast here in the UK? Out there. <laughs> I wouldn't say it's a moment of summer, but I get it's warm and toasty. And yeah, if I shut my eyes, it could be somewhere nice. It feels nice to be here and also to be ushering in a new print product. There are so many things going on at this time of year uh, for Monocle. It's a time of year when advertisers spend the last of their budget. It's a time of year when readers have a few moments to curl up by the fire and to explore things that might improve their life for the year ahead. And you're going to say we have just the product for you if you're curling up by the fire with empty hands. You're going to help us out. Well, it's got a it's got a widespread and a wider spread than the more normal issue of Monocle. It's a Berliner format newspaper in a beautiful trim, amazing colour reproduction. This is printed in Constance. So as you say, we've come back to a bit of branding from the past. Uh, Monocle fans will remember Alpino um, as the luxurious broad format read on everything that's happening in the high altitude. And there's also, there's a tiny bit of symbolism as well. I suppose at this time of year, there is a bit of a flurry of bad headlines, uh, particularly uh, in the UK and in Western Europe at the moment. <laughs> how, to, how to stay warm is, uh, is, is a problem and an issue. So what we've done is we've dispatched our journalists and correspondents to outposts of opportunity and places of intrigue as where, well. Where have you sent them then and what are they writing about? Uh, we sent uh, uh, one of our stringers in Seattle up to the high north to Alaska to embed with the uh, US troops who patrol an area which is uh, culturally very, very different from Russia, but geographically extraordinarily close. There's a, a, a radical candor about what would need to happen if there was some sort of land war, if there was some sort of nuclear or uh, military threat to the US and you see them behaving in uh, cold weather the uh, all of the training that they need to do these guys are on skis they're burrowing in for the night they're able to camp out under the stars and in the pines so there's a couple of things going on there there's an interesting visual story 
There is uh, something for all of the people who care about defense. There's a broader story about the US and Russia. And there's a human story about these guys out in the high north who are actually on one of the frontiers that we very, very rarely talk about and think about in the news. It's just lovely the fact that your words have just transported us to somewhere very dangerous and cold. Shall I take you somewhere else? Go on, take us somewhere else a little bit warmer. Um, There was a a story that I saw and I didn't research very well, but passed on to our foreign editor, um, Alexis Self. Um, and it was about the discovery of um, Chris Kringle, the original, the original Saint Nick, and the fact that he probably lived in uh, Turkey rather right. than rather than anywhere <laughs> near um, Finland. And Finland and Turkey do have a, an amazing relationship; they're uh, the same root of language, even. I didn't know that. Uh, but you know, Finland also has this kind of soft power asset in kind of flogging Santa abroad, if you'll excuse the slightly inelegant term. Well, I think the seat is still warm from the departure of the real farmer, Father Christmas, who is here for uh, for the Monocle Christmas Market. Absolutely. And if there's anybody who's an ambassador of soft power, it's him. Well, he's he's based in Rovaniemi, and I'm sorry for any children listening. He's the head of a group of Santas who administrate um, a, a pretty shrewd business deal where Christmas is sold, and the idea of Christmas is sold. Uh, amidst the wilds of uh, Sami land in uh, northern northern Lapland. But there's this bit of archaeological evidence that, that links the original St. Nicholas to Turkey. Just this little tussle over who killed Kris Kringle, where was Kris Kringle from, has ended up in quite an interesting kind of diplomatic shoulder barging over who gets to own the idea of Santa Claus. I never knew there was murder. I just like the title, Who Killed Chris Kringle, actually. Marvellous. So uh, the details of details of the late saint's death are, uh, will be forthcoming in the uh, new Alpino issue of Monocle. <laughs> I'm signing up. Uh, anything else you can tell us about, or is this just a, a sort of a, a last opportunity to, to, to celebrate the fact that we can actually pick something up over the Christmas holidays and sit down and read? It, I, I wonder whether we're all getting a bit too fast for our own good here, and there is that you know, if you've got a decent newspaper to read, that means that you will positively allocate a little bit of time to sit down. I think so. I think um, th- there's a there's a there's a great point. There's a broader question there. Uh, you know, we often are in meetings with advertisers or readers, and they say, "Well, you know, how many impressions? What does a piece of print get?" And you say, "Well." You know, people aren't answering their emails at the same time. They're not looking at the clock. They're not getting an alarm call on their phone. They aren't being bothered by their mother-in-law or father-in-law about the Christmas decorations and how to get the box out of the attic. So, you know, creating a newspaper is about also creating a moment for our readers to step away from the strains and strife and Sisyphean task of answering their emails and to enjoy something. So uh, just very quickly, you know, we, we, we do have these kind of thought pieces in the front of the book. We've got an amazing winter thriller, a bit of fiction in the back of the book. Um, I commissioned an amazing author called David Sachs, Canadian writer who has a new book uh, about the future of technology to write a really long, uh, really detailed, really thoughtful, really funny idea about, you know, when we look at the future, we only look at the technology of the future, not the way that people behave or not the way that it pushes people to behave. So there's there's deep thinking, there's long reads, um, and there's just plenty to see, eat, drink, bed down with, and uh, some great hotel recommendations in that core Western European spot where these newspapers are distributed and hopefully going to be enjoyed. Josh Fennett, thank you so much for talking to us about the latest edition of Monocle Alpino. Check out your nearest news stand it's on the way there and that's all we have for today's program many thanks to all my guests and to our producer emma searle and our studio manager adam heaton with editing assistance by tamsin howard after the headlines more music the briefings live at midday here in london and the globalist is back at the same time tomorrow but for now from me emma nelson goodbye thank you very much for listening and have a great week